Today we're looking at our last sermon from the Awakening series. What I've tried to do is talk about you and me and the church. What does God want us to be? How does God want to work through us? An obvious kind of question to ask is, what does God expect of the church? Or as I've put it, what pleases God about the church? It would be nice if we had a little prescription to help us. Fortunately, we do. It's Revelation chapters 1 through 3, where Jesus speaks to the churches of Asia. Seven churches, a complete number. And he gives them a prescription. I hope you'll listen with me and look with me as we go through the church at Philadelphia, but by extension, all of the other churches as well, to see what pleases God about the church. We are looking at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7, but what I'm really doing is looking at all seven churches. Revelation is put together with, in groups of uh, seven, seven different groups that begin with the incarnation and end with the return of Christ. Many people look at these seven churches in different ways, but I think that the seven churches are found in every age, and you would find them in every place, all the way from Ephesus to Laodicea. They're written because John was in Ephesus in Asia Minor, a very large city. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was a large, powerful city. And then he is writing to seven churches, beginning with Ephesus and then moving all the way around to Laodicea. And you find a Laodicea in every time. Uh, Somebody that has a church that is lukewarm. And you find churches like Ephesus all the time who have lost their first love. And you find churches like Philadelphia that where there was an open door for evangelism. And we're going to let that church be representative to us. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Jesus says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have only little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have helped my you have kept my command to endure patiently. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Jesus said, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have. 
so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. What, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You get in habit of saying certain things. So here's something that I always say. If a dad is coming out and there's a baby asleep, put to sleep during the worship service and sleeping soundly, I always say something like this. If you can put the babies to sleep and keep the adults awake, it has been a good sermon. So I'm going to give you permission now in just a moment to close your eyes. And I want you to think about something. Not imagine it, because imagination means it may not be real. This is real. I want you to think about something. I want you to think about what he said in Revelation 1 through 3. It is Jesus who writes. It is Jesus who is speaking to the to the churches. And in the scripture, he says that he holds the stars in his right hand. So he holds the stars in his right hand. What are the stars? Well, he tells us those are the angels of the churches. But he doesn't tell us what the angels mean. Almost all commentators say they are the preachers, the pastors of the churches. Because in, in the Hebrew language, the angel means a messenger. I hold the messengers in my right hand. Now, here's the part I really want you to see in your mind. And it helps me to close my eyes to see in my mind. I want you to see the other thing that is said in this passage of Scripture. That the... The Lord is walking among the candlesticks. The candlesticks are the churches. It is clear. And I want you to see in your mind that you are the church. And the church has assembled together as the people and family of God. And we're not alone. But the Lord is right here with us. And in these three or four churches that are clustered together around our corner, the Lord is walking among the candlesticks. And he is calling us to be people of faith and obedience. The awakening that occurs will come when the church is obedient to God. Jesus spoke to the seven churches, and in all but one case, he had something positive to say to every church. In one church, there was nothing positive. In all but one case, he had something corrective to say to every church. In one church, everything was positive. So what is it that Jesus says 
to the church? What does he want to say to you? What does he want to say to the church as a whole? What does he want to say to us individually? So I put the sermon together. I just go to the seven churches. And what are those things that are found repetitively? What do we hear again and again when he speaks to every church? Surely this is what God wants to happen to the church. I, the, the best uh, summary I ever, ever seen about these seven churches was of a commentary that was entitled, What Christ Thinks of the Church. Well, you and I need to know what Christ thinks of the church, and we need to know what Christ thinks of the pastor and the people and the work of God. Because it's not our church. It is his church. And it must be lived and run and led according to his plan. What are these five things that you find again and again in these seven churches of Asia? Well, the first one is the word of truth. Again and again, we are called to be according to the word of God, to live according to his word, because he speaks to us through his word. Think of the, the last verse that we read. He who has ears to hear, it's kind of fully clear what that means. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. In the gospel of John, that John the Apostle wrote as well. In the Gospel of John, we're told again and again to, to hear the word of truth. And even Jesus says to the Father, thy word is truth. We're to hold fast to the word of truth. We are not left in this latter day to make it up as we go along because that's what a lot of people want to do at the church. What, are we, what should we doing? What be doing? Well, we'll make it up as we go along. We'll decide whatever fits the world, whatever fits society. And frankly and sadly, grievously, there are plenty of churches who are making it up as they go along and they are leaving out the word of truth. That is not what Christ says to the church. We're told again and again to we're to hear the word of the Lord and we're to follow the word of the Lord. To the church at Sardis in Revelation 3, 3, Jesus said, remember therefore what you have received and heard, hold it fast and repent. Paul said in Ephesians that the church is built on the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. And we know that the apostles were those who had been with Jesus from the beginning and who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. They had a unique message that we cannot have in the same way because we were not eyewitnesses of the the walking on the water and the feeding of the 5,000 and the raising of Lazarus and the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection and his ascension. 
The church is built on the teaching of the apostles. It's not up to us in this day to figure out whatever it sounds good to us and to live accordingly. We're to hold on to the word of truth. There's a second thing that we're to do, and it follows logically from number one. We are to follow, we are to believe, we are to teach sound doctrine. We're to teach the word of truth, and we're to hold firmly to the word of truth. What Jesus is saying in here, and it is very prominent, is that we're to reject false teaching. Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 uh, through 16 are powerful words. They're to the church at Pergamon, the third church that is mentioned. Here's what Jesus said. First of all, he's, he's given a positive word to the church at Pergamon. They're one of those who has done well and good for you, and I'm thankful for what you've done. But here's what he said, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are, the, there are some among you, not saying the whole church does this, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Remember him in Numbers hired by the king who was opposing the people of Israel to go and curse the people of Israel, but God wouldn't have anything to do with it. But Balaam became a symbol of false teaching. You have held to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those among you who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And we don't know exactly what the teaching of Nicolaitans is. He mentions it twice, so it must have been a, a strong false teaching of that day. We're to hold to sound teaching. And we're to let Holy Scripture show us what we are to believe and how we are to live and we are to follow after the things of God. We reject false teaching and we embrace repentance. It's interesting because a lot of times we, we kind of think of repentance as when, when I first moved to New Orleans, and that was a long time ago, when I first moved to New Orleans, there, was, there were street preachers many times over and uh, they always talked about repentance. There was an automobile uh, downtown on Canal Street. You would see it often turning in and out of the French Quarter that said repent. And basically, the only thing anybody knew about repentance was that it was written on the side of a car because we don't talk about repentance. And yet, repentance is something that is found again and again in Scripture. And there are four churches that Jesus told to repent. What did he mean? Well, most of the time, you and I think repentance is what happens to a person who has not believed but now believes. And, and I'm so thankful that we see it that way because that is certainly correct. You, you have to repent of your sins. You have to turn away from your sins, turn your back on your sins. The first sermon Jesus preached 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew says that John the Baptist, the, the message of John the Baptist could be summarized in exactly the same words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But God calls you and me to repent. God calls you and me to turn our back on our sin, to ask God to forgive us, to, to say to God, God, I don't want to live this way anymore. And to four of the churches, he tells them to repent. We need to embrace repentance and obedience unto God. There's a third thing, and this too is logical. We hold the truth, we reject false teaching, and we embrace godly behavior. Remember what Jeremiah said? Jeremiah said to the people of Israel in his day, you've gone after worthlessness, and those were idols. You've gone after worthlessness, and you've become worthless. So Jeremiah's the first to teach us that you always become like your belief. So your belief is tremendously important because you become like your belief. And you follow the things that you believe. So we are to repent. And we are to receive the word of the Lord. And be faithful unto God. And to, to follow correct teaching that God has given to us. And we, we, we accept godly behavior. Here is the issue with the church leading an awakening. How can we lead an awakening when we need an awakening? When Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he wrote to them and he told them to flee immorality because their immorality was all around them. The pagan world, the world of the first century was an immoral world. Here's what I used to say. I used to say until the year 2000, these are the words I said, the only century more immoral than the first century, the year in which Jesus lived, the year in which his sacrifice was made, the year in which the revelation was written and the gospels were written, the only century more immoral than the first century was the 20th century. But I had to quit saying that because now we're firmly entrenched in the 21st century and of all things, what in the world has happened? 1980 and 1990 looked like the good old days compared to where we are in the world and in this country today. God calls us to flee immorality. God has this beautiful, wonderful plan for human sexuality. It is that one man and one woman will commit themselves to one another for a lifetime and think of the beauty of this and they will become one flesh. And this was God's plan from the very beginning. It's God's plan before sin occurred. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. It's a beautiful word, stick to his wife. Somebody, somebody in a paraphrase one time said, the, the crazy glue will hold them together. And every, time, every now and then in a marriage, it feels like the only thing that will keep you together is crazy glue. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they will become one flesh. What a beautiful picture that is physically emotionally mentally spiritually to the point that I've said that that a husband and a wife who have grown together and become more and more like one another and and have been one flesh for years and years when one dies the other feels like part of them is gone and while that can be a certainly a sad experience it is a wonderful experience to think about the plan of God anytime Jesus was asked about marriage he always took people back to Genesis 2 24 for this reason a man leaves his father and mother and sticks unto his wife and they become one flesh when we ask about the question of is this wrong is this wrong is this wrong I think the right thing to ask is what is right and what is right is one man and one woman who live lives of purity and devotion to one another for a lifetime. This is God's plan. And everything out of this is outside of God's plan. So we're to flee immorality. We're to embrace repentance. We're to follow the things of God and seek to be like God. What does it mean to have godly behavior? Well, it means to have God-like behavior. And as we all know, the goal of the believer is to become like Christ in his attitudes, in his devotion, in his ministry, in his, in his actions, in his love, in his kindness, in his goodness, in his mercy. And in order to get us to that place, God has given us his spirit and with his spirit is sent Fruit, peace, love, and joy, and faithfulness, and goodness, and patience, and kindness, and self-control. God's desire for the church is that we would have godly behavior. But there's a fourth thing, and this is so prevalent in these, these chapters. Jesus encouraged us to be patiently enduring to persevere to not quit to not give up we all know how easy it is to give up we've seen family members who have given up who have quit quit on life quit on the family quit on the world quit on the church We've all seen that, but again and again, God says through his word that we are to patiently endure, that we're to be strong, that we are to embrace a spirit of fortitude. I don't think it's lost on any of us that when Joshua was appointed the leader of the people of Israel and God says, you're going to cross the Jordan and you're going to take Jericho, that God prepared Joshua, and three times in four verses, he said, Joshua, be strong and courageous. 
And then he summed it up and he said, Joshua, haven't I told you, be very strong and very courageous. I think that's the word to the church. I think that's the word to you and me as believers because guess what? We go to school and we find out we need to be strong and courageous. And we go to work and we find out we need to be strong and courageous. And we go to our neighborhoods and we need to be strong and courageous. And if we're going to be the church that pleases God and that lives for him and that leads an awakening in our world, we have to be people of fortitude and we have to follow after him and we have to be faithful unto death that is what is said again and again look at revelation chapter 2 and beginning in verse 10 these are strong words said said to the church at smyrna don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer i tell you the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death, which is hell, because we've been faithful unto death. Now, how do you do that? Well, maybe there's some people who are just naturally persevering and strong and courageous but I don't think that's me and so my prayer is God as I face temptation let me be strong and courageous God as I face persecution let me be strong and courageous God I know that there could things that could happen in the world that would be a test to me and God I pray that you would help me be strong and courageous what does the church need? Maybe this is what we need more than anything else to, to be, to persevere and to be people of fortitude and to embrace perseverance and to give our best unto God. There's a fifth thing, and I hope you'll think about it very seriously. Be zealous for the Lord and for his gospel. Have a zeal for him that is above all else and and this is one of those things that you find again and again so let's let's look at it the first one is be zealous and repent and have this fire that we're going to be like God and we want to live for him and therefore we're going to turn our back on that does not please which does not please God and we're going to turn our back on being lazy and resentful and harmful to the things of God we're going to embrace what God wants and we're going to shun what God doesn't want be zealous and repent and you read through these, and by the way, it'll take you eight or ten minutes. You read through these seven churches, and you'll see again and again a call for repentance. 
A second thing that you see that sticks out here is this holding fast unto Jesus. Most people in the, in the seven churches, they either know the last church or the first church. The last church, Jesus says to Laodicea, you're neither hot nor cold. And because you're neither hot nor cold but lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Kind of hard to forget that picture. But then the other church that we know is Ephesus where Jesus says, you have many things that you've done right, but there's one thing, because you have forsaken your first love. And commentators can't tell us exactly it's what it means, but what could the first love of believer be other than the Lord Jesus himself who died for us on the cross and came to live within us and forgave us of our sins and made us new people and give us a home in heaven. How easy it is to forget your first love. How easy it is to not hold fast unto Jesus. But when we have gone through some years to, to make our faith and to make our devotion a ho-hum kind of affair, and we forget our first love, be zealous and hold on to Jesus. You ever thought, what should be the, the most common word in the church? I mean, what would that be? Man, I'm afraid that sometimes it's pastor and not for a good reason. And sometimes it's church and sometimes it's, who knows? But what should be the most used word in the church? Shouldn't it be Jesus isn't this place about him? Aren't we wasting our time if this is not about Jesus? Don't you have something else to do if it's not about Jesus? But if it is about Jesus, and we hold fast to our deep and abiding love for him, then this becomes a place where you cannot keep people away because we learn of the love of God and the devotion of God for us and what God did to make us his own people, which leads us to say that in our zeal, we need to embrace open doors. We need to respond to open doors. In, in the, the letter to, to the church at Philadelphia, Jesus said, I, I'm opening a door and nobody's going to shut it. And what was that open door? I think it was the door of evangelism, the door of telling people about Jesus, the door of seeing people coming to know the Lord. Our goal, one of our goals is that we will reach this youngest generation for Christ through youth groups and camps and vacation Bible school and through teaching the good news of Jesus. We had this great open door two weeks ago. Over a thousand children, kindergarten through sixth grade, hearing about Jesus. Some of those people, some of you, had never been to church before. Some of those children never heard Jesus' name before in a positive light. Some of those children never read the Bible, didn't know where to open the Bible. What a great open door for evangelism. And many of them who came to faith in Christ, and the word that was said was amazing. 
the testimony of some of those children, not adults, children, who had this intense need for God. Do you know what I say about children? I say they are no nine-year-old atheist unless, unless somebody has tried their best to drum into them that there is no God. Because all the nine-year-olds I know want to know about Jesus, want to know about God, want to know about heaven, want to know about hell, who have an intense interest. And it is our goal to do that. And let us pray for an open door. You want to know how to pray? Pray for an open door. Pray for an open door of evangelism. Pray for an open door for nine-year-olds to come to know the Lord and for 19-year-olds to come to know the Lord for this youngest generation to be the generation that brings an awakening in our country. We need to respond to that open door and take advantage of it. And when you have the opportunity, and sometimes, here's been in my experience, when I pray for open doors, I find open doors everywhere. Would you pray for an open door, and when God gives it to you, would you march through confidently Because God has opened the door and with gentleness and respect and kindness and love, would you share what it is that God has done for you? Respond to that open door and respond to God's voice. One of the most important passages in these these verses is chapter 3, verse 20. It's where Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into them and fellowship with him and him with me. And there are all kinds of things we want to know about that. Is he saying that just to the church at Laodicea, or is it a summary of all the churches? I take it as the summary. This is the word. God is standing at the door and knocking. He wants to be a part of our fellowship. He wants us to invite him in. He wants us to proclaim him greatly and loudly and and with great devotion, and he wants us to obey him. Another question is, is that word just for the churches or is it for a person who is not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm not completely convinced on either side of that. Maybe it is both. And maybe you are one of those people who didn't know why you came to church today. Could I give you an answer? I can't get in your mind, so I, I can't read your mind. But could I give you a reason why you came to church today? Maybe you don't know. Maybe you just, you just showed up. Maybe you didn't intend to listen to the sermon, but you did. Why did you come to church? Could it be that God, the Holy Spirit, drew you here and that God wanted you to hear a sermon that says, Behold, I stand at the door of your heart and knock, and if you open that door, I will come in to you and I will fellowship with you forever and you with me? Could it be that God appointed this place and this time for you to know him? I pray that you would respond to the voice of God 
calling you. Do I have a reason for saying what I just said? Yes, I do. Jesus said that if we exalt him, he will draw all people to himself. And he is leading and calling. And I pray that you would respond to God. And I pray that you would let us help you with it. Here's what we do. We have pastors here. Our promise is we're going to do our best to help you uh, hear the voice of God, respond to God to show you what the next step is, how you do this. And we invite you to come to the front and make that decision. Maybe others of you just need to pray in the stairs. The steps are here for that. And you can pray with the pastor and maybe you are burdened for people and you want to pray for somebody that God would speak to their heart and they would be saved. Would you make those decisions for God today? Would you stand with me, please? I'm going to pray. As soon as I say amen, it'll be time for you to make those decisions, to come to the front, to pray, to pray with the pastor. Let's pray together. God, we praise you and we thank you for your word, how powerful it is. God, we know that you want us to obey you and follow you. And God, we want to say in our hearts that we do and help us to be more obedient and more faithful. God, please, we know you are drawing people. Help people to be strong and courageous and help them to seek where you want them to follow. God, we pray for people who would come to you and obey you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.